0: ahead and open your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. Habakkuk chapter 3. By this point, you should be able to find it without too much trouble. And before I get started, I wanted to tell this church thank you. Uh, the covered dish supper, besides being excellent food, I know there's a lot of people behind the scenes that do a lot of work to make something like that happen. Uh, so thank you. Our family, we feel loved, we feel cared for, uh, and it's good to be back. Uh, we're starting to feel settled again. God's provided transportation and everything else. So we're, you know, you you dream and God goes above and beyond your dreams. So thank you. Thank you for being used by God. So Habakkuk chapter 3, we're going to go through the whole chapter. And this is the one I've been ranting and raving about. Uh, So this is it. This is the the great, uh, this is the high point of the book. This is where we see that transformation occur in Habakkuk. Habakkuk chapter 3, we'll read the whole chapter. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigeonoth. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. O Lord, renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Parim. Salah. His glory covered the heavens, and his praises filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hands where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish, were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the seas when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow and you called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. Salah. So the mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by. The deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens. At the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear, "'In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. "'You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. "'You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. "'You stripped him from head to foot. "'Salah!' "'With his own spear you pierced his head. "'When his warriors stormed out to scatter us, "'gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding, "'you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters.' I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled, yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet... I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God, my Savior, the Sovereign Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of the deer. He enables me to go on the heights for the director of music on stringed instruments. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. And we thank you for this chapter that reminds us of the transformation that comes about when we spend time with you, when we pray to you. And the trust that comes about when we look around and we realize that really, you are in control. And though we don't understand how or we don't understand why, yet we can trust in you. God, I pray that this morning, you would transform us by the word of your power. Get me out of the way. pray in Christ's name. Amen. If you would please keep those Bibles open, keep them out in front of you, Habakkuk chapter 3. What I want, I would encourage you to do is continue to follow along with me. I'll give verse references, say this every time, but my desire is that you be testing and you be examining God's word alongside, with me. So let's look at Habakkuk chapter 3. Now, I'm telling a story, and I don't want to tell the story, but I'm going to, because uh, part of the Christian life is one of transparency to some extent, and we've got to be honest. When I moved away from Clover two years ago, uh, we were moving to Wheaton, Illinois. It was actually two years ago. At the end of July, it'll be two years. Uh, and we moved there because I feel that God has called me to the mission field. Um, I've felt this my whole life, and there are huge needs around the world. For example, in the entire continent of South America, there is no place where somebody can go to an evangelical school and get a Master's of Divinity. For the pastoral search committee, you'll have a stack of, you know, maybe even 200 people who are looking, uh, who ha- are, have been trained and educated and are able to fill a position in Columbia. There are very few, if any. The only way they can get that degree is by coming to the United States. And as you can guess, most of them can't afford it. So the goal is to go and take education to them. I feel like God gave me this call. So two years ago, we went to Wheaton College. I was going to apply to a PhD later, and so I needed to get an academic degree. So we moved to Wheaton College. My family made a lot of sacrifices. Uh, You guys backed me up, and I worked hard. I worked really hard for two years. And since I'm giving this example, we did fairly well. In studies, I did fairly well. Um, I presented at five academic conferences. Most people are lucky if they get to do one. I published a few things in some academic journals. Things were going really well. I began to be well-connected. I was doing things in class. I was telling my professors that I was going to apply for a PhD. They're like, John. The way you're going now you won't have a problem it will go it will... so i started to believe them i thought everything was going to go off without a hitch i started to send out my phd applications of the five that i applied in the united states i was accepted to zero i applied to three european institutions i was only accepted to two and only one of them gave me any financial aid and it was about an eighth of what we needed so here it was i moved my entire family I followed god's call i did everything the way i thought i was supposed to do And I'll be honest, for the past few months, I've been struggling with grief, a feeling of betrayal. God, you called me to this. A feeling of failure. There's nothing like putting everything you have. I was sleeping about five hours a night because I was not going to fail because I didn't work hard enough. And yet here we are. And I thought, God, what are you doing? And to be honest, it's not that big a deal. I mean, we still have a roof over our heads. So many of you have gone through some of these difficulties where you put everything you have, or you've, or you've taken care, or God just takes something away, be it a job, be it... Uh, there's so many other things. And, and, and we ask God, what are you doing? But as time goes on, and as we spend time with God, I think He begins to reveal that He really knows what He's doing. And He may have given me those desires, but He knows best. maybe. It was for such a time as this, so we could be together. Maybe it was for a different reason. Maybe it's because God wanted me to teach before I went back to school. I have no idea. And yet, God has called us to make the same kind of prayer that Habakkuk makes. If you remember the context of this book, Everything is going wrong in the nations around him. In chapter 1, we see him complaining, and then God replies. Then you see a second complaint, and then God replies. And here in chapter 3 is where we see this closing prayer of, of resolve and of faith. You see, because God is above the earth, because he's above the nations, he's above everything else, therefore, we should trust in him. If you look at verse 1, it says, a prayer of Habakkuk. Now, that, that phrase, oftentimes, in the book of Psalms, you'll find it says, a prayer of of David. Then if you look throughout the Psalms, there's that little word in italics that says Salah. Oftentimes in the book of Psalms, you'll find that. We're, it, 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 was, it was a division of measurement and music. Then there's that really weird word in verse 1, the Shigionov. We think that that was the tune that was used to sing this song. So if you realize, at the beginning of Habakkuk 1, he went from grief and lament. By chapter 3, he's singing you see that transformation that's happening and if you look at verse, verse 19 at the end of verse 19 not only is he singing it's a song that everyone is supposed to be singing it's even got guitar accompaniments string instruments you know who knows what it was but it's supposed to be sung by god's people and so what is it how did that transformation what is the, what is the content of this song first of all we're going to go through the chapter essentially two times but i want us to see two separate things first In verses 3 through 15, you're going to see God's dominion over the nations. God is in control of the nations around us. And how do they know that? They look back to history. They read the thicker part of the Old Testament to see how God has been faithful. There in verse 3, it uses the words Timon and Mount Paran. Timon was the land of Eden, Edom. And when Israel had to come into the nation. They had to go through Edom. And Edom tended to be one of those countries that didn't like Israel a lot. You know, United States and Canada, they get along pretty well. Edom was a next-door neighbor that they did not get along at all. And so there was constantly battles and wars. And then if, if you look below where it says Mount Perrin, in Deuteronomy 33, Moses is just given a massive sermon. In The book of Deuteronomy is a massive sermon. By the time you get to chapter 33, he gives the benediction. At the end of the service, that's those familiar words. What is it that we say? The Lord bless you and keep you. Their benediction started out talking about Mount Paran and how God had come forth from Mount Sinai. So when they heard Mount Paran, they would have thought, oh yeah, that benediction. I remember when God was faithful and he gave us this land. In verse 5, it talks about the plagues and the pestilence. Now, What does that make you think of? Usually not good things, but if you remember the ten plagues, uh, that's one of those Sunday school stories most of us know, it was more and more devastating. When you go from the first to the tenth, they keep getting worse and worse, but there's also separation. Whereas in the first few plagues everyone suffered, by the time, by the end, God was only putting it upon the Egyptian and he was showing that his people, he was protecting his people and showing, these are my people. So with pestilence and with plagues, God was showing that he was more powerful than all the Egyptian gods, Pharaoh included, because he considered himself a god. And then if you look at verse 8, it kind of references uh, the Red Sea escape. When God's people go up to the Red Sea and they don't know what they're doing, God divides the sea. They go across, Pharaoh's army tries to come across and the waters come down upon them. And then in verse 9, every time the Bible refers to that Red Sea escape, it talks about God as a warrior. Talks about how, and, and the imagery here is he unsheaths his bow. He's taking his bow out. He, it's using arrows. It's using rods. It's using this imagery of God punishing the nations. It also, in verse 7, refers to, this, to the area of Midian. Now, that's one of those that we're not as familiar with there in verse 7. Midian, when Moses, we talked about in Sunday school uh, with the adults, Moses was a murderer. Okay? Uh, Moses was in Egypt, he was raised by the Egyptians, and he saw someone being, uh, and and he kills an Egyptian uh, slave master, essentially. And then he runs away, and he ran away to the country of, you guessed it, Midian. So he goes there, and, and that's where he takes care of Laban's sheep, and then later he comes back and leads God's people out of Israel. But later they start moving back through Midian's land, and Midian starts thinking, the country starts thinking, wait, he's like, I don't know if we want these people. So they call a prophet. And they ask this prophet to curse God's people. This prophet tries to curse God's people. It keeps not working, not working. It's that story of the the donkey talking. If you remember that, that's the story, of the donkey talking. And they're not able to curse God's people. They say, fine. At the end of this story, they suggest, they call the women of Midian and they say, why don't you go and seduce the men of Israel, the men of God's people? And so they go, and not only do they seduce them to adultery, they also seduce them to idolatry. So God sends a plague amongst his own people because they were not faithful. And then we see that there's a man named Phineas that stops it. That, but he actually stops. Uh, 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 there's an adulterous uh, relationship happening, and he stops them. And that stops the plague because he was faithful. And so we see that, that Phineas does that. And so we see God, this country, constantly trying to cause God's people pain, anguish, suffering in any way possible. And then if you remember the story of Gideon, That's also the people of Midian who were attacking, trying to destroy the people of God. What's interesting, after that, we don't actually hear of them ever again. God completely erased that people who, through history, were trying to cause Israel to fall. Each of these examples are of nations who stood up against the nation of Israel. And and Israel was in fear. And whenever Habakkuk referenced those stories, people would have remembered, yes, God was faithful then. And so, in verses 12 through 15, he uses the prophetic purpose. Now, you thought you were out of school, so you didn't have to worry about grammar anymore, but you have this guy up here, so just bear with me for just a second. In grammar, when you use the perfect, that's something that happened in the past. But all scholars agree, verses 12 through 15 is talking about Babylon. This hasn't happened yet, but he's talking about it as though it already happened. How can Habakkuk talk about this section here as though it already happened? Because if God says something is going to does, says he's going to do something, it's as good as done. It is as good as done. And so he talks about it as though it had already been accomplished. Not only so, but look at verse 13. In verse 13, it echoes Genesis chapter 3. You see, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve had been punished because they had sinned against God. And so God promises... That an offspring of the woman will crush the head of the snake. That's one of the curses. And from that, that person was the anointed one, would be the Messiah. If you look at verse 13, it says, uses the word anointed one. The literal word there is Messiah. And he will crush the leader. Same word for crush that it uses in Genesis chapter 3. You see, this isn't just the crushing of nations. This is that Satan will absolutely be crushed. Death. Would be crushed. It's pointing to the promise of the Savior Jesus Christ. You see, the other nations here aren't the enemy. God punished even his people throughout history as he did the other nations. Why? For rebelling against God, for causing the suffering of others, if you remember from chapter 1 and chapter 2 of this book, and that brought the punishment. But not only did God bring punishment, he promised a Messiah. You see, God is over the nations. But not only is over the nations, if we look at those same verses, you see God is in control of creation. Now, in ancient Mesopotamia, uh, if you read Genesis 1, it tells one story. It tells the story that God spoke and the world came into existence. When this book was written in the other nations, what it was, they saw it as two gods. There had been these two gods, and they had this big fight. Uh, It would have been great for today's movies. They had a big fight. And then when one of them died, the other god that survived took the pieces from that god, and that's how he made the world. This world was made from a big conflict between two gods. That's not what we see in the Bible. It's not a big fight between gods. No one can even stand up to God. Rather, how does God create? He creates by speaking the world into existence. He's in complete control of the world. So here it talks about how God is in control of the pestilence. I want you to think about, if you had been a farmer way back then, there's no life insurance, there's no health insurance, you don't have a savings account, and so you plant your crops, and locusts come and eat them all. What do you do? There is nothing you can do. And so the ancient people, what they would do is they would do a bunch of sacrifices. They would sacrifice to the god of the locusts and sacrifice to the god of the rain and sacrifice to the god of hail, begging them, please don't destroy my crops. That was their entire existence. But here we see, it's not these other gods. Who is it that's in control of the rain and the sun and the locusts? It's God, the creator. Blight, drought, nothing surprises him. Not only is he in control over pestilence, he is in very control of the light. If you look at verse 4, it talks about how light actually comes out of his hands. You know, when we talk about Jesus being the light of the world. or In the book of Revelation, uh, in chapter 1, it it, it explains Jesus coming when he comes again, and it describes light coming from his hands, almost in echoes. God is in control of the whole world. He's also in control of the mountains. Look at verse 6. It says the eternal mountains are shattered. What does the word eternal mean? They last forever. So what is this saying about eternal mountains? They weren't so eternal after all. And what does it say about the hills? The everlasting, there's the word again, everlasting hills sink. What happens when a hill sinks? It stops being a hill, right? God is in control of the world. In verse 10, the mountains quaked. And that that description there is actually like childbirth. The mountains were petrified when they heard the voice of the Lord. God's also in control over the water. Think about... Creation. God separates the types, the waters from the waters, the heavens and the earth, and then God separates the water from the land. God just speaks, and it does what He wants. And then later, when Jesus is on the earth, and there's this big storm, and the disciples are petrified because they're about to die, how does Jesus calm the storm? He speaks. God is in absolute control. Over the water. And if you look at verse 9, it talks about how he cleaves, literally, he cuts in half. And we see that in, in, in canyons. He cuts in half mountains. How does he do it? With water. Verse 10, it talks about rainwater sweeping over, and it's, it's sort of reflecting the way the, the, the flood was and how the water covered the earth in judgment. God's also in control of the stars and the moon and the heavenly beings. Verse 3, it literally talks about how God's splendor, His glory, covers the heavens. By definition, the heavens are supposed to be the highest thing there is. And yet God's majesty, God's glory is above it. Verse 11, it talks about how the sun and the moon stood still. I've, always, I've never understood this story. In Joshua chapter 10, Joshua is, atta- is being attacked by these five kings. And, and by God's grace... And through God's power, Joshua starts conquering these other five kings. And Joshua prays. He says, God, please hold the sun still so that we can trounce them, essentially. And so the sun stands still. Now, if you think about rote, how did that happen? But here it says that God is in control of the sun and the moon, and they stand still at his beck and call. It talks about the cavalry of God. Look at verse 8. It talks about his horses and his chariots coming in wrath and salvation. Now, what does that mean? How is that possible? How can the two go together? In the book of 2 Kings chapter 6, there's the prophet Elisha. Now, Pastor Evan preached about this, I think it was about four years ago. But there's this time when Elisha, who's so old that at this point he's actually blind, and he's in this city. And the king of Syria has been wanting to kill Elisha the prophet for a long time, and so he sends his entire army. And the entire army surrounds this little city, and they're in their chariots. And and Elisha's helper comes to him and says, we're dead. We're done. There's, there's, we're surrounded. What are we going to do? And Elisha doesn't do anything except pray. And what he prays is, God, open his eyes that he may see. God opens the eyes of the helpers, and he looks around, and he sees the spiritual forces. He sees he sees the chariots, it says, of God. And literally what happens to those people that are around the city? They are struck blind. And Elisha says, here, let me lead you. And then he feeds them. He gives them back their sight and sends them home. God is in control over the earth. And if you look at verse 15, literally it says that his chariots run on the water is, is the preposition that's used there. I mean, if you think about the Egyptian forces, they tried to go through the dry land and they ended up under the water. But God's armies go on over the water. He's in absolute control of the nations. He's in absolute control over creation. And so what's the conclusion? You have nothing to worry about. God's been faithful in the past. He will be faithful in the future. There is nothing, nothing that is beyond his control. If you look at verse 2 and then verse 19 in the Hebrew, the word Lord, remember we talked about how when it's in all capitals, that's God's covenant, that's his family name. It's the first word and the last word of the entire chapter. God makes the bookends, so to speak. Everything included, God is the first, God is the last. Also, what does Habakkuk ask of God? If you look at verse 2, he says, Please renew. Please make known your fame. Please remember mercy in your wrath. Do Do you pray for spiritual revival? Do you pray that God would transform this town, this church, this nation, your family? Do you pray for revival? Do you see God's mercy in His wrath? It says there... In wrath, remember mercy. How can we say those two things in the same sentence? Usually, I don't think wrath and mercy at the same time. Think about when Adam and Eve were in the garden. They were cast out. And then what did God do? God placed an angel at the entrance of the garden. Now, I always used to think, oh, it's just because he didn't want them coming in. But I want you to think about it carefully. There are two trees in the garden. The, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And he didn't want them to go in and eat of that tree because can you imagine... Living this life of pain, of disappointment, of grief, of cancer, skin cancer, forever, of disappointment with our families. And so what God did is once they'd eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he blocked the entrance and he put his angel there, lest they eat of the tree of life. He was protecting Adam and Eve from having the rest of us live like this forever. Instead, he puts an angel there. You see his mercy. And what do we? when you look at the book of Revelation, what do we see? We see the tree of life that we're able to eat. So that we can live forever perfectly. God's wrath and his mercy together in the exact same action. And yet... Despite all this, despite the things that we can say faithfully about God's word, if you look, Habakkuk is still petrified. Verse 16, he says his heart is pounding, his lips are quivering, he feels decay in his bones, his legs are trembling, his knees are knocking. Yet, what does he say? I will wait patiently for the day of calamity. Remember last week we talked about the emphasis was waiting on God. And so it comes to this last section. Now, these last few verses, I had them read the day I was ordained in this very church, but the reason I had them read here is because several years before that, I'd gone to a country named Zimbabwe. Now, Zimbabwe, about 40 years ago, was the breadbasket of Africa. It fed almost the entire continent, but then there was some political shiftings, and now there is hardly any food in the entire country. When I was there, the uh, inflation was so great that $1, when I first got there, was 33000 By the time I left, it was 60000 Generally. When you get a salary, your, your salary goes up every month because of inflation, and that's not enough to buy your, pay for, your bus fare to go to work. That's how bad it is. These people don't even have food. They the exact same thing over and over and over. It's just mushed corn. And we went there, and, and, and I, was, I was doing a Bible study with another guy there from Africa, and I read that, 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 that section from Romans 5 because the topic was, how are we faithful when things are difficult around us? And I pointed them to Romans 5 that we read earlier, you know, persevere in the midst of suffering. But my brother, he didn't, he didn't read that. He read this verse. Though the fig tree does not bud, there are no grapes on the vines, the olive crop fails, the, field, the fields produce no food, there are no sheep in the pens and no cattle in the stalls. That was what they were living every day. They had nothing to eat. They didn't know what they were going to eat the next day. And yet, even if horticulture, viticulture, agriculture, animal husbandry, even if all everything failed, I mean, this was business, this was retirement, this was family, this was your very life. Even if I don't have those things, remember Babylon is about to attack here in Habakkuk, and, and the, literally the if there can be translated for when when they come and when they destroy absolutely everything, I will rejoice in the Lord. And what's interesting, this is every commentator that I read on this said rejoice isn't strong enough. It should be overjoyed. It should be jubilant. It should be I mean you're, you're rejoicing, rejoicing in God my Savior, rejoicing when this happens. Why? Because the God of salvation is there. It's related to how do the righteous live. Remember what we said last week, the righteous shall live by faith. You so, see, this isn't just about survival, but it's about doing the impossible. I mean, it describes making my feet like a deer. Most people think, have you, have you ever been to Crowder's Mountain and where there's that, that rock face? There's an animal called an ibex. And in Israel, it literally can climb up what looks like a verti- vertical rock face. If you think about the one that's here in Crowder's Mountain. And what he's, he's saying is, I can, my, he makes my feet like a deer. I can go up on the heights. Nothing can stop me. You see, believing in God when all is hopeless, it, it, it's, it's almost like forgiving the unforgivable. He, forgivable. he makes it possible to do anything. Why? Because God is enabling him. So first of all, I would encourage you to look at the change He started the chapter by saying, How long, O Lord? And by the time he gets to the end, he says, I rejoice and I trust in the God of my salvation. Secondly, pray. Spend time with God and listen. Protect your time. If you don't have enough time, you need to make time. Because that is the most important thing that you do in day. Cut out an hour of sleep if you have to. If you are not spending time with God, how can this transformation occur? Offer Him your despair, your fear, your anger. Give it to Him. He will change you through prayer through his word but also look around you Seriously, look around you right now we are able to sing of our trust in god together you see god has not sent us on this journey alone not only is he with us he's given us brothers and sisters with whom we can go on this journey with whom we can get frustrated at and then we can reconcile and then god can bring us together in unity why because he gets the glory You see, during these past few months that it's been hard, it has been hard. But even in the disagreements, for example, that Teresa and I have, I've had to remember, God is caring for us. We put all our eggs in one basket. It's not the basket of PhD, no, no. It's the basket of God's grace. Think about the Declaration of Independence. At some point, read it. It's good. But if you look at the signatures that are there on the bottom, they were forever in a legal document showing that they had been traitors to Great Britain. They were putting all their eggs in one basket. That was bold. Have you done that? Have you committed yourself to Christ? Have you given yourself to this cause and saying, no matter what happens, yet will I trust in God? So I would encourage you, pray. Pray for your children. Pray for this church. Pray for this world. Greatness arises out of necessity and difficulty. And for some reason, God thinks you are fit for such a time as this. Let's pray. God, thank you. We thank you for this day. We thank you for the transformation that occurs in these chapters. But we also thank you for your church. We thank you that you have not sent us on this journey alone, and you have called us to, to unity. So, Father, as we transition, even from trusting and learning to trust you towards looking to how you've provided through your Son, and through the Lord's Supper, God, I pray, please turn our hearts to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. Cause us not to look around us, but to look to you. Please, oh God, in, in times when, whether it's our own habits, or whether it's people around us and they seem insurmountable, we thank you that you are bigger and better bad, than our problems. It's in Christ's name that we do pray. Amen.